The limited partner shares in the potential outsized returns of a well-planned and executed investment, but is a passive investor with no day-to-day -day operating requirements, whose liability is limited to the extent of their share of ownership. The limited partner has the maximum leverage on their most precious asset, their time. Now they say you're the average of the people you surround yourself with. Are you looking to elevate your network, connect with individuals that bring your average up? The Limited Partner is more than just a podcast. It's a community to learn, to participate, to connect. There's no other community out there like this for Limited Partners. So subscribe to the podcast, but most importantly, join the community at thelimitedpartner.com. Welcome to the podcast with your host, Jake Wiley. Welcome, partners. This is your host, Jake Wiley. This week, I'm joined by Deidre Bullard of The Motley Fool. Deidre, thank you and welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, awesome. You've got, you know, looking over your background and a little bit of chatting before the show, you've got an interesting background as it relates to real estate and trends. I'd love for you to share a little bit with the audience about you know, your journey and how you ended up doing what you're doing now and what you're working on right now. It's been sort of a, an interesting journey of gradually getting more and more intrigued by real estate. Started originally as part of AOL way back when writing about real estate. That led me to working at realtor.com and then working for a couple of the top residential brokerages in Los Angeles. And that eventually led me to real estate PR and then learning more about real estate finance and eventually became part of The Motley Fool a couple of years ago. Well, that's really interesting. You've seen a lot then. And I'm sure everybody's asking and, and trying to figure out like what the trends are these days. But I guess what gets you most excited about writing about real estate and, and the trends that we're seeing? What doesn't? I mean, real estate connects to everything. So right now, if there are so many interesting trends happening. I mean, you've got the whole metaverse thing and virtual real estate state, which is just out there. And the amount of money that's being thrown at that is really strange. Biggest categories in real estate, which I'm sure you know right now, are industrial and multifamily. Just so much capital being put in both of those areas, partly because of COVID-related trends, sort of piggybacking on top of some of the long-term trends that were already in motion. I think you alluded to it a second ago, is that what makes sense, what's happening in the marketplace. So let's dive in, right? My audience is, is typically limited partners. They're looking to make investments into a limited partnership. Obviously, real estate is one of the avenues. It's actually my personal favorite. Like That's where I, where I put all my investments. But let's talk about market trends. What are you seeing? One, let's start with what seems crazy, and then maybe we can dive into it a little bit deeper there. Uh, I would say that what seems crazy is the metaverse and what's happening with virtual real estate. I think what seems interesting is the prices for industrial real estate and the price per square foot. Industrial's always been that sort of, I mean, they call it the unsexy category, but it's actually really fascinating. And the price per square foot is amazing. I'm sure your listeners talk about or watch cap rates and things like that. Cap rate we're seeing on the industrial side, so interesting. So, you know, prices keep going up. Demand is out of control. The need for warehouse space is so big. And so starting to see more deals on that front, in in addition to, of course, seeing a lot of multifamily, mixed use, all of that stuff, all of the big crowdfunding platforms are having a lot of deals related to, to mixed use and multifamily right now. You know, from what I understand, you can correct me, you probably know better than I do, that, you know, office has always been a staple of real estate investing, especially at the institutional level. And then flash forward, you know, 
here we are with COVID, all of a sudden, you know, office is like, what do we do with it, right? Are people living, you know, like, are, are we, is the office dead? Is it coming back? Is it changing? And and I think the jury's still out on that. I think it's coming back somewhat, but there's been a big shift into multifamily and then also industrial, which I think is what you you kind of hit on. One, I think it's becoming a more, more interesting. Let's talk about industrial for a second. It's becoming more interesting because there is more demand. The supply chain, like it's in our face. But two, it's also probably become a lot more interesting because all this money that used to go into the office space is kind of shifted down kind of the, the pipeline of where they're going to put their assets. And all of a sudden, you know, industrial, which is just, there's not a lot of value add, right? It's a box, but what are you doing with it? So I guess, what, what are your thoughts there? Well, I think it's just a box thing is changing. And that's really fascinating. You kind of look at industrial, look at what Amazon is doing, putting in robotics, uh, smart warehouses, things like that. So that's a trend. Most warehouses right now are absolutely still just a big dumb box. That won't be where we're at in 10 years. So I think there is potential there. And I think that what you hit on there is the idea that as more money comes to industrial, there's more attention on the space, more thoughts about how to do it intelligently. One of the things that's interesting about industrial is it so much depends on where you have things and having warehouses for that last mile distribution near, you know, near highways, near airports, all of that. We're sort of in the midst of this massive shift in supply chain and switching from sort of like just in time to just in case, which means, you know, making sure that there's enough of anything we need because we've all learned that this system, this massive supply chain that we've relied on for decades, when it stops, the whole world gets impacted. Maybe it would be helpful for you to kind of unpack this kind of last mile of what Amazon's doing, because I do think that's interesting and that, you know, how we did industrial, how we did warehousing, or like still do, but where you think that's going. Can you flesh that out a little bit? Sure. So one of the things that's happening with e-commerce is you've probably seen curbside pickup, buy in store or buy online pickup in store, all of that stuff. So some of that is related to that last mile. You want to make sure that things are near people so that they can get them quickly. Amazon for years, you know, with Prime and everything, they need to get things to people quickly. The expectation has become when you order something, you get it in 48 hours or a lot less. And so all of that means that Things have to be relatively close to where you live, depending on where you live, so that they can get to you fast. So major cities have to have a lot of industrial close to where a lot of people live in order to deliver on that promise. Yeah, you bring up Amazon. Amazon kind of fascinates me because, I mean, obviously we shop and we've had things. We've always used Prime delivery, but I guess more so now than ever. You know, now I'm shopping and I can see, you know, like I click on it. And I don't live in you know New York City where there's a major hub right down the street. I live in Charleston, South Carolina, but I can still get things today, right? Which clearly means that they have staged what I'm looking to buy in a warehouse somewhere nearby, right? It's not just some central location. And that's new, Right. Like I feel like in the past year and a half, I've really seen that option become more available. It's not like you'll get it tomorrow or it's, you know, two days from now. It's no, you can get it today if you order it. Is that kind of what, what you're saying? Is that they've moved all these boxes closer and then they're staging and they're thinking about what people want and putting it in places where they can get it? They're constantly building their network and they're using a variety of sites they own and things they're building, as well as a lot of leases. I mean, they're taking up a ton of leasing space all around the country, partly because they do have to satisfy all those different hubs and make sure that things can get there quickly. I guess they're competitors. Are we going to start seeing others doing the same thing and hence, which are indicating the trends on the industrial really shifting? 
I think every company thinks about that a little bit differently than they did two years ago. And so we're seeing a lot of different trends happening with manufacturing. You know, uh, we used to have offshoring. Now we are sort of seeing this sort of move toward insourcing. So you're seeing that as well. You're just seeing much more of a focus on warehouses for all businesses. And part of the problem with Amazon and, and the other giants in the space is that they kind of squeeze out the little fish. So there are now a lot of smaller companies trying to figure out how to develop services that can help smaller businesses, you know, share warehouse space or things like that, because that's a concern as well. Continuing on the Amazon theme, I was thinking about Whole Foods the other day. And obviously with Amazon taking over Whole Foods, the experience there is very different than it used to be. It actually feel like when you walk in, it used to be, my wife was saying that like, I could always go in and find something kind of interesting and I would buy it because it's like locally grown, but it's presented really well. You walk in Whole Foods now and it feels more like a warehouse. You got people all over the place picking for all these orders that are going to be delivered. And it, it feels like it's a repurposing of their existing kind of higher end shopping center into a warehouse, which I thought I feel is, is a pretty fascinating move because that's not what originally attracted me to Whole Foods. And I actually probably don't shop there as much as I used to because it doesn't have that same, like you're getting something special here feel. Well, when you think about retail, it's really interesting, right? Because it's absolutely the impact of pickers, of Instagram, cart and of the buy online pickup in store, all of that means that the way a store functions is fundamentally different now because it has to serve people who are in there to shop, people who are in there to pick, internal people who are maybe satisfying those curbside pickup orders. So you've got a different multiple types of consumers in there for different purposes. And so you have to reconfigure things differently. You know, do you put the things that people are most likely to be picking up for the front? How do you configure your space? If you've got less foot traffic, do you start making some of the store warehouse space? Do you put less stuff on shelves and more stuff in the back where people can fulfill orders? All of that is sort of shifting kind of shifted in real time during the pandemic and continues to shift. I think it's really interesting. Let's, let's go back to the metaverse comment. Yeah, I know that we all are kind of seeing what Facebook is doing, but what does that mean? What does that mean to real estate? What does that mean to the market? I know it's not a Facebook thing, but I guess what should we be thinking about when we think about the metaverse and what's coming? The interesting thing is that there is kind of this land grab happening in this metaverse platform called Decentraland. And so there were a couple of big real estate deals, virtual real estate deals in the millions over these pieces of real estate. And the idea is similar to real life real estate in that they were buying plots of land on this sort of main shopping drag within the metaverse with the idea of then leasing it out to, to brands. So you've sort of got this retail shopping experience in the metaverse that's just starting to happen. So it's very, very speculative. It's not something I'm involved in, but it's something to, to kind of keep an eye on because there's money flowing toward it. The thing that I wonder about this is I'm old enough to remember when Second Life was a thing back in the early aughts. And I don't know if this is going to take off. I mean, the thing that you have to wonder is it's not tied to physical land. So if that particular metaverse, people stop going there, it loses its value. It's really hard to get your mind around, right? So I actually have been reading Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash the book that kind of maybe sparked the whole concept of the metaverse, just to get a better you know, idea or perspective of what that means. But I think for my listeners, just to be clear, we're talking about buying real estate that doesn't actually exist. It's not real estate, but it's like, imagine a shopping mall in a virtual reality world. And you know, people are now grabbing quote unquote metaverse real estate to be on 
the main drag, the main, the main line closest. And the point being is that if it takes off and it's like, great, you know, it's like buying .com names early in the, and you know, you can have some really good ones. And then now it's really hard to find them without them being complex or using different extensions. But same concept is that like you're in this metaverse and you're, you're buying this space so that you can be front and center. But what happens if that's not the right metaverse? Right? <laughs> what if it's somebody else's or whatever people like, this just doesn't make any sense. Like it's such an interesting concept and it's really you know, if if you're right and you invest in this, then you're a genius, right? If you're not, then it's just, well, okay. But such a such an interesting concept. Or are you I guess what what should we be expecting? Like, is there gonna be how do, how is a normal person even get involved in it? It's all connected to cryptocurrency. Uh with Decentraland, they use a cryptocurrency called mana, um, M-A-N-A. And so you'd have to uh have to check it out in order to understand it. It's really, it's really interesting. I would say for people, there's no harm in looking, there's no harm in being mildly speculative. I would not put a lot of money for this type of thing at all. One thing I think is fascinating, some of the luxury brokers, uh, a couple of luxury real estate brokers actually have started selling land in the metaverse. It's an interesting gimmick. It reminds me of maybe five years ago or so people started listing properties and then saying like, oh, we'll accept Bitcoin. And every time that happened, the press would write about it and it would be, you know, like this luxury house you can buy with Bitcoin. So I'm still thinking it's a little bit PR stunty at this point. I agree, right? I mean, you think about the whole value, the underlying value of real estate, it is that it's tangible. Yes, exactly. You can't make any more of it. And now you're talking about a, a digital real estate world where you, know, you could have competitors that are like, well, I'm opening up my own metaverse, right? You're not even in the same verse that we're in, I guess. So it's a very, I, I don't know. So I, maybe I'm a little bit old now. I'm trying to wrap my mind around like how this would work and you know, the value of it. Well, this, the scarcity rule still applies, I think, within, that's what's interesting about the particular metaverse. Like, so this, the land that was in that big deal I was talking about was sort of like on the, like you'd say, like the Fifth Avenue of this particular kind of area. There is that idea of scarcity that exists. I mean, that's one of the things that makes Bitcoin interesting is there is that idea of scarcity. There is a finite amount. And the same thing is true with virtual real estate within certain metaverses. Right. And I guess that's, then it goes to the point where it's like, well, there's Bitcoin. Yeah, there's a finite amount, which is what makes it attractive. Then the flip side is that that's not the only cryptocurrency that's out there, right? So it's like, well, who are you betting on? You know, it's like, are you betting on Yahoo? Are you betting on Google, right? Yahoo seemed like the clear choice for a long time and then Google took it over. Like there's, that exists still. So, I mean, I think to your point is check it out, maybe be speculative and invest small. Like you think about the folks that got in and did a little bit of mining on Bitcoin, like really early, no real harm, no foul. But like if they held on to it, like they're doing really great now when the whole lot of risk at that point, but now it, you know, it's a totally different ballgame. Exactly. Let's get into residential. I think that's also very interesting. There's a housing shortage. Prices are going through the roof. You know, the market is as high as it's ever been. What should we be expecting there? Fed is contemplating rate changes. So there's, there's a lot going on. Yeah. And, and it's likely we're going to see some interest rate creep up, but the Fed is is still very, very cautious about that. And what's interesting to me, Redfin came out recently with their list of hottest neighborhoods. Now, every year they do 10 hottest neighborhoods, maybe like three or four years ago, you'd expect mostly California neighborhoods. This year, mostly Florida. Like I think like eight of them or seven of them were Florida. And so I think that it's really interesting to see where the money ha- is flowing to Florida, to Texas, certainly. That's where people are building right now. And so there's just so much attention in those markets. The other thing that is really interesting is the single family rental boom, right? We've seen it with uh, publicly traded companies like Invitation Homes having, you know, 80,000 
rental, single family rental properties. And this is a place where you think most single family rentals, small landlords, you're starting to see more consolidation, but still just very little. And the other thing is like build to rent. Now you see some of these home builders building whole communities that are going to be rentals versus sold. So there's so much opportunity in multifamily, so many different ways play it right now. Yeah. The, the single family rental market is kind of blows my mind. I'm actually literally selling my last single family rental. It's happening concurrent with us recording today. So this is, is really exciting, but I've had a bunch of them over the years. And over time, I've decided to just start selling them, especially in this most recent market where everything's very hot because the economics, the cash flow, it's just very tight on a single family rental. Whereas like that's really a lot of the benefit of the multifamily is that you know, you've got a lot of doors in a box and the economics seem to be a lot better. But like you mentioned, I mean, we've got companies that have close to 100,000 rental, single family rental homes, and they're making it work. And there is definitely a trend towards this build to rent, like talking about whole communities where the intent is, you know, that they are being built to rent, you know, it's like in a, in a, a disaggregated apartment complex, right? And that is, that's new. That's really a new trend. I mean, I know we've, there's been spots of it in the past where companies have built you know, little towns for their people with the intent of renting it. But now that becoming an industry, I, I find it fascinating. And I, I really don't understand how the economics work. I think you're dealing with some interesting economies of scale. And I think technology makes it a lot more possible. I think that things like smart locks and smart thermometers make monitoring of homes a, a lot easier and make uh, you know maintenance a lot easier. I think we're going to see more and more of that, that these homes will sort of be connected in a way. So they're not all physical doors in a physical building, but you may be monitoring them the same way that you would kind of monitor a, a single building with, with a bunch of different apartments in it. Yeah. And I mean, scale in a neighborhood or an area has got to be so important, right? If you've got maintenance folks, they've got to be busy and working. You can't have like one here and one way over there because you'll be, yeah, it'll kill you. But it's it's working and, and it's growing. And I think there's, you know, the investments are doubling down there, which is find amazing. Here I am, I'm liquidating my portfolio and, you know, there's other folks out there that are trying to buy them, you know. Zillow, I think they didn't do a great job of it, but Zillow is, is now sold off not all of their i buying, but a lot of their inventory. So they were able to, despite having to exit that, they were able to at least uh, unload a lot of the properties relatively quickly because there is such a market. So much, like billions of dollars of private capital, is is being invested in this right now. Yeah. So let's let's talk about the money then. Where is the money going? What's the trend? What do you see out there that is worth keeping an eye on? It is it is absolutely single family rentals and and multifamily too. Multifamily's not going away. I think the ways that multifamily is changing are interesting. I think that certainly the pandemic we talked earlier about office. So what is happening with individual homes if people are working from home more, what do they need? Multifamily buildings are starting to think about that, how to configure does every building need a business center now the same way that you would have one in a hotel with like a printer and you know things like that. How important is high speed internet? now. I, I think that's fascinating. You see that pretty much everywhere. That's an important factor. So you see multifamily kind of changing. It's not going away. I mean, household dynamics, household formation, we just need more housing and it's not being built fast enough. I mean, all of those charts that you see from like new home building for the past couple of decades, you can just see 
where after the great financial crisis, nothing ramped back up. And so now there's just this massive shortfall. And that's part of the reason why we have such high prices right now. It's just basic supply and demand. Yeah, I think and that brings up a, a good point about like affordability of housing, right, which is a big crisis in the country, you know, is the supply is constrained, the demand is getting higher, the prices are going higher, like typical economics 101 type stuff. What are you seeing in terms of affordable housing and, and trends that are heading that way to kind of help fix or alleviate some of that pressure? You've got a bunch of different things because it's all public. This is a problem that has to be solved through public-private partnerships, right? It's not, neither one side can do it. So you've got some of the things like that are in the Build Back Better bill. You've got like individual states doing things like what California has been doing. And you've got certain cities playing around with zoning, getting rid of single family zoning in a lot of areas. I think uh, Minneapolis was one of the first ones to do that. Other cities are now considering that, you know, but then even once you open up zoning, you still have to incentivize the developers and it still has to pencil out for them. So that's when you start seeing things like tax credits. I mean, we've got the Opportunity Zone program. Uh, there are some expirations this year. Year especially that make it less and less appealing. But is that program going to be renewed and expanded? Potentially, there's certainly other programs and tax incentives that really will uh, will come into play to incentivize developers and make it attractive. Because if you're investing, we all want to do well and do good. And so when you're investing, it, it's interesting to see that there is that possibility now through things like tax incentives to be able to make money, but also have a certain percentage of the building be earmarked for affordable housing. You brought up a really really great point that I want to highlight is that municipalities are working on zoning, right? And they are trying to figure out how to, you know, because nobody wants high density in their neighborhood. Like that is generally a fact. But also, I think we know that high density or higher density doesn't have to be super high density is a way to alleviate one, it's a transportation issue Two, it's affordability of housing and, you know, the ability to get the workers where they need to be. That is changing and it's going to have to change. So as you think about so one of the things that makes like multifamily or really any real estate a great investment is the scarcity principle. So as you think about investments that you're going to make, you know that's something that you have to keep your eye on is, let's say we're looking at a multifamily property in a certain location. The beauty of it is, is that there aren't a whole lot of other multifamily around. There's a lot of opportunity to make a value play. There's It could go up. Now, if zoning changes and allows for the creation of you know additional multifamily properties, you're going to have to weather the impact of the additional multifamily family that's around. Now, with that said, I also don't think that that's necessarily a big issue, but it's something to be aware of. So as a, a limited partner, right, which is my audience here, those are questions that I would ask, you know, whoever the operating partner, the general partner that you're working with, is, what do you know about the zoning changes? What do you think, what's on the horizon for density in these areas that we're talking about? Because it's an important question and it's possible that they don't know, right? And it's a question that they need to go ask because the zoning laws and the restrictions have been around for so long that everybody just kind of assumes that, that is the way it's going to be. But I think that thinking about there's a lot of pressure to make a change is an important factor. It's true. And as a limited partner, it, it's your power comes from before you sort of before you invest the money, because once once the money's in the operating partner does it, that kind of goes. But your power at, before you invest is to ask as many questions as possible and do your homework. One of the things we say at The Motley Fool is this idea of money following people. So there's so much research you can do on your own too. You can, you can see what's happening happening in the area that that you're invested in and these days you don't you don't have to like go to the neighborhood there's so much you can see online in terms of what's going to be built or what is built what current rents are you know is there going to be like a new Trader Joe's or a Whole Foods in the area is you know is that going to make a difference there's so much 
information now that's available to all of us. And so when you're a limited partner and you're looking through all of the documents that, that the operating partner is, is giving you, you also have the power to take that information and then do your own homework too. And, and I think that's an important part of it. Exactly. And I think too, right, is that there's a lot of inertia when you've been doing something a certain way for a long time. Right. So there's, you know, I'll give you an, an example here is that we've built a bunch of properties and there's advanced framing techniques, which means that you can use two by sixes, 24 inches on center versus two by fours, 16 inches on center. And the net result is you actually save a bunch of lumber and the labor should be faster. It's heavier wood, right? I've talked to framers that have been doing their, this work for 30 years and they had no idea that that was even a possibility because they've just been heads down. This is the way we've always done it. I'm really good at my craft. I'm really good at my trade. So the, the point being is that there are going to be times where you may have information or you're looking at a market or you're asking questions that, you know, just because of inertia, somebody else that's been doing it for forever hasn't even thought about or hasn't even been focused on. And sometimes you'll pick up something that is not, you know, on their radar and that's great, right? You should ask the questions. And I, to your point, Deidre, is that your power and your opportunity to make an impact is in the beginning when you're asking your questions. So ask them all, right? If you have something, yeah, I think you'll be surprised. You'll probably find a stumper in there somewhere where they'll, whoever you're working with might have to go back and, you know, do a little bit of research and get back to you. And that's fantastic. I believe investing in curiosity is a superpower in investing. I mean, really, your curiosity is what gets you interested in things and it can be sometimes what protects you. And so that's really, you have to really follow that. Ask the questions because I mean, what's the worst that happens? They don't have an answer and they go find it or they say, you know, no one's going to say to you, that's a stupid question. They're just going to answer the question or they're going to find the answer for you. And if someone does say that's a stupid question, that's probably a good sign that you don't want to invest with them because you want someone who's going to take your question seriously, who's going to know the answers. It's, it's kind of part of the vetting process too. Yeah, absolutely. Right. When you ask questions and how they respond is, doesn't even matter what the question is, but the interaction gives you an indication of who you're dealing with. And I think there's, you know, it's the subtle aspects of working with somebody and getting to know them and how they're going to respond to you is so important to making a good decision. Well, Deidre, this has been a great conversation. I love to wrap this up with a little bit of gratitude. None of us got to where we are by ourselves. So I want to give you the opportunity to give a shout out to somebody in your life that's made an impact and helped you give you a leg up to, to get where you are today. So there's anybody there you want to give a shout out to. I would say Matt Argersinger at The Motley Fool. Uh, you know, you could you could follow him online on Twitter. Uh, working with him the past couple of years has taught me so much about thinking about properties and about deals. He's just so meticulous. And I think he looks at the numbers and he's taught me to think about the numbers and to pay less attention to the flashy percentage rate of return kind of things and more attention to the fundamentals. That's great. Well, Matt, I hope you hear this. Wadija, thank you for being on the show. I loved this conversation. Trends, real estate, where it's going. Talking about the metaverse, that's the first time on the show. So I think that's fantastic. But thank you. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Limited Partner Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. If there's any reason you wouldn't leave us a five-star review, please email me directly at jw at jakewiley.com. Your feedback is always appreciated. Now, the show is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the limited partner community. It's a community where limited partners can come together, learn about what best in class looks like, opportunities, and most importantly, a place to connect. There is nothing out there like this. So head over to thelimitedpartner.com and sign up. We'll see you next time.